This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Dustin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Any book that covers the history of sex research is likely to highlight the contributions of people such as Sigmund Freud, Alfred Kinsey, and William Masters. All of them undoubtedly made important contributions to the field. However, there are a lot of hidden figures who made similarly important contributions, but who are frequently left out of the story. One such hidden figure is Cher Height, who authored the best-selling nonfiction book on women's sexuality titled The Height Report in 1976. This book was a big deal. To put it in perspective, when we think back to Alfred Kinsey's pioneering Kinsey Reports, published in the 1940s and 50s, they sold about a million copies collectively. That's certainly a huge number for any book about sex. By contrast, however, The Height Report actually sold 50 million copies. That puts it among the 30 best-selling books of all time. However, there's a good chance that you've never heard about this book or the author behind it. So let's talk about Cher Height. There's a new film out about her life and work titled The Disappearance of Cher Height. I'm going to speak with the director of this film about the life and times of this extraordinary woman who made an enormous contribution to the science of sex and was featured everywhere in the media for about two decades, but who quietly disappeared from view in the 1990s and has been forgotten in a lot of the history books. However, her work remains to this day just as radical and revolutionary as ever. I am joined today by Nicole Noonan, an Oscar-nominated, Emmy-winning documentary producer and director. She most recently directed The Disappearance of Cher Height, which premiered at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival and is now playing in select theaters. Nicole also co-directed and produced the 2021 Academy Award-nominated documentary titled Crip Camp. Nicole's other acclaimed documentaries include the Emmy-nominated films The Revolutionary Optimists, Sentenced Home, and The Rape of Europa. This is going to be an amazing conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Take pleasure to the next level with The Handy, a Scandinavian pleasure device like no other. It's an adult toy for anyone with a penis that combines with interactive technology to open up a whole world of new and immersive experiences. The Handy can be synced with online content from multiple adult websites in a way that allows you to feel what you see on screen. The easy-to-use controls allow for custom and targeted sensation, plus there's a game-changing mounting accessory that allows you to use the device completely hands-free. It also has a remote control, so you can enjoy partner play together or long distance. There are also a variety of sleeves available to choose from to create varied sensation. To learn more, check the show notes for the link and get 10% off your purchase of the handy with discount code SEXANDPSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H. The Kinsey Institute discussion series highlights current sex and sexuality research from a wide array of disciplines. Speakers include Kinsey Institute faculty, visiting scholars, affiliates of the Institute, and invited researchers. Lectures are both in-person and live-streamed. Follow at Kinsey Institute on the socials for more information or view recordings of past lectures at vimeo.com slash Kinsey Institute. That's vimeo.com slash Kinsey Institute. Have you ever wondered how sex differs around the world? The Sexual Health Alliance can help you to expand your knowledge through their study abroad programs. Join Shaw in exploring different cultures, 
engaging in immersive learning experiences, and collaborating with international experts in the field of sexuality, while also traveling to amazing places and making new friends. Whether you join them for an online conference, enroll in a certification program, or embark on a transformative study abroad adventure, Shaw provides a platform to elevate your career. You might even get the chance to study in a foreign country with yours truly. Come meet amazing people, gain valuable insights, and be at the forefront of sexual health education. Visit sexualhealthalliance.com to learn more and secure your spot today. Hi, Nicole, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thanks. Great to be here with you. It's a pleasure to have you here. So we're going to have a two-part conversation about the recent documentary you directed titled The Disappearance of Cher Height. In our first conversation, we're going to talk all about Cher herself. And in the second, we'll focus on the story behind the film. So as a starting point, in a nutshell, for people who don't know her at all, who was Cher Height and what was she most well known for? Sherheit is most well-known for her blockbuster 1976 best-selling book, The Height Report, which did land like an earthquake in our culture because of her main finding, which was that most women did not achieve orgasm through vaginal penetration, but that women masturbated and easily achieved orgasm through clitoral stimulation. And it is kind of wild to think back on that being such a bombshell, but it really was. She did her work by surveying for the height report over 3,000 American women, and she asked them over 100 questions about their sex lives and their emotions and their feelings, drawing this really incredible, diverse, and intimate portrait of what women were really experiencing. And that conversation, those voices just hadn't been heard before. So it really was a revelation to many, many people. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think that's the good nutshell version of who Cher was and what she was well known for. And, you know, it is hard (laughs) to think about the idea of clitoral stimulation as being like this novel thing that no one really knew about, you know, as being such a big deal. But we're still talking about it today because it's still not discussed or covered in most sex education courses. And so, there's still a lot of relevance to Cher's work, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But before we talk about Cher's research and writings in a little more detail, in the film, you explore many of the side jobs that she had and her involvement in activism. So tell us a little bit about what Cher's life was like before she rose to international fame. Well, Cher grew up in St. Joseph, Missouri, and then she lived with her grandparents. Both her parents were not really a part of her life. Um, They were very young when they had her. So then she was raised by family in Florida, and she went to the University of Florida, and she got a master's degree. And then she wanted to go to Columbia University to get a PhD in intellectual history, and she enrolled in a program there. And she was getting government loans, and her grandfather was helping to pay the cost of her education, but she still needed money. And so she was living in this rat-infested basement apartment on the Upper West Side, among other places that she lived, and she was modeling. And when we started researching the story, we discovered a lot of different varied types of modeling that she did. You know, she wanted to try to be a high fashion model because that would have been the most lucrative thing. And she was with the Wilhelmina Agency, which was the big agency at the time. And apparently Wilhelmina herself really took a shine to share. But she just didn't quite have the exact 
height and figure to be a high fashion model. So she ended up doing a lot of work uh, with Robert McGinnis, the illustrator, and she was on the cover of pulp novels and his posters for James Bond movies and various things like that. And that was really interesting because she was really pretty comfortable with posing in the nude. And she kind of liked the creativity. And we found lots of examples of her collaborations with uh, with photographers and artists over the years, where she was kind of creating these like beautiful, gorgeous images of herself in collaboration with other photographers and artists. And she had a very realistic take on doing nude modeling. She saw it as completely within her right to do that. And she wasn't ashamed or embarrassed of it. But at the same time, as time went on, what we read in her writings, which are at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, made it clear that as time went on, she really did start to feel worn out and exploited by that system and wanted to get away from it. Meanwhile, she was suffering a lot of sexism at Columbia University and uh, and really struggling to develop her thinking in the way that she wanted. So she sort of dropped out of Columbia and joined the women's movement. This was one of the things that was fascinating to me about watching the film is that I had no idea about this other side of Cher's story and how she was kind of a Bond girl, you know, and posing and doing all of this. And she was an incredibly beautiful woman. And there were lots of side jobs that were involved along the way. And then eventually she got involved in activism. And then later came the Height Report, which was based on several years of research that she had been conducting. And that's what really launched her career. So tell us a little bit about what was behind the Height Report. So why was Cher studying women's sexuality and wanting to put it out there so that people could learn more about it? Well, you know, one of the last advertising campaigns that she was involved in was for Olivetti typewriters. And in that ad, she was told to kind of look lovingly at the camera and say something to the effect of Olivetti, the typewriter is so smart that she doesn't have to be, or that was going to be the slogan on the ad. And she was so upset about that. And then she read that there was a women's group that was going to be picketing the headquarters of Olivetti typewriters because they were so upset about how women were being portrayed in that ad campaign. And she decided to go And she was worried if people were going to kind of judge her for having been a model in those ads. But what she found was this incredible community of of like-minded women who were able to have the kind of um, intellectual discussions with her about sex as an institution, which is what she was trying to explore, that she was unable to find in academia. And from that movement developed these conversations and consciousness raising groups where women were sharing their sexual experiences and, and share was really interested in whether or not comparing the myth of the vaginal orgasm, which indicated that women did not orgasm from vaginal penetration, and Masters and Johnson's second book, which indicated that most women should be able to orgasm indirectly through indirect clitoral stimulation in intercourse. And so she, you know, she wanted to hold a conference. She wanted to have conversations and people were too shy and too um, uncomfortable with discussing sexuality publicly. So she developed this idea of this anonymous questionnaire and sent it out uh, to women all over the country in this fabulously grassroots manner, as we discovered, with lots of helpers, friends, boyfriends, colleagues, you know, the help of the National Organization of Women grinding out mimeographs at night in a basement, the basement of, you know, a radical printing press. She got these questionnaires to people and people really, you know, hungrily responded from all all over the country, all different walks of life. 
And then she met through feminist circles and uh, Regina Ryan, who was an, an editor. I think she was the first female editor-in-chief of a major publishing company, actually. And she thought that these survey answers could be compiled and Cher's analysis of them could be compiled into a book that that would be really helpful for society and probably sell really well, too. And, um, and that's how The Height Report was born. <laughs> and she was right that it would sell really well. And watching your film gave me a great appreciation for everything that went into Cher's research, because in the 1970s, if you wanted to survey thousands of people, you couldn't just post something on the internet, right? You know, you had to make these all by hand and deliver them. And there wasn't research funding to do this kind of work. So the fact that she was able to collect that vast amount of data at that point in time on her own and with the help of friends and some volunteers is just amazing to me. Now, the Height Report came on the heels of the 1960s sexual revolution, and this was a period in time when the birth control pill had finally become widely available, and many people saw it as a tool for women's liberation that offered sexual independence and autonomy. But there was still a lot of sexual inequality. And I think that's what Cher's work was really trying to shine a light on. So what do you see as the most important findings from her work that got people to think differently about sex or challenged conventional beliefs and ideas about women's sexuality? Well, you know, Cher had um, had, had some early experiences with the sexual revolution, had gone out to California and various things. And she ended up with a pretty strong opinion as written about in her contemporaneous writings from the late 60s that the sexual revolution was really exploitative and women weren't re- were becoming very available to men for sex but weren't necessarily achieving equality within those sexual relationships and and her observations of that you know were one of the driving things also behind the questions in her questionnaire and her research in the height report so i do think that you know probably the most significant finding is the finding about how women achieve orgasm but also I think the thing that was so revolutionary to me when I read it when I was 12 and that many people have said to me was the most important thing to them was the idea that the idea of the diversity of experience, she wasn't talking about how sex in some normative way happens. She was showing that it happens differently for every person. So she had women talking about their own personal experiences of you know, not being able to achieve orgasm and their thoughts about why or or being disinterested in sex. Or she showed that a lot of people were gay. She talked about the variety of relationships that women had with other other women and that they were bisexual, which, you know, Cher herself identified as. So I think it's that incredible diversity of experience that was so revolutionary and that also kind of was also so um, triggering and threatening to dominant culture. This idea that actually we have a choice. Yeah. Diversity is really the hallmark of human sexuality. If you look at any of the big studies over time in human sexuality research, we see that there's vast individual variability in terms of what it is that brings people pleasure, what it is that they fantasize about, what turns them on. And so shining a light on that diversity, I think, has always been really important for helping people to better understand themselves, to know that they're normal and they're not alone in all of this. Now, one of the most fascinating things that I learned from your documentary is just how seismic the Height Report was. I mean, this book is amongst the 30 best-selling books of all time. I mean, it's right up there with the Harry Potter books in terms of sales, which is an incredibly rare feat. So in your view, why do you think this book became such a massive sensation? 
I think it was because people had no other way to access that kind of information, that kind of narrative description of sexual experience, you know. I mean, that was one of the things that made me want to make the film was my recognition that in my own life experience, there was no other book. And I read that book when I was 12 that taught me kind of what I needed to know to know that I wasn't alone or to know that it was okay if I was different. And I think that was um, true for many women. I mean, it just today I got a, a text from a friend of mine. His friend saw the film and he kept from his mother's things a copy of her, her copy of the height report. That was the one thing he kept from her things when she passed away. And it it's a really well-loved copy of the book. And it has this kind of beautiful handmade cloth cover that she sewed herself to put on the book, which I've heard is was a phenomenon at the time because women wanted to be reading it all the time, but they didn't want people to know that they were reading it, you know? And indeed, you know, my mother had hidden it away from me. It was spreading everywhere, you know? And then I've also heard from so many men, you know, going around the country, um, so many men who said, you know, thank God I got a copy of the Height Report when I was 13, 14, 15, because, you know, without that, I would have had no idea how to have mutually pleasurable sexual relationship um, with my partners, you know. Um, So I don't even really know where else today you can get something that's quite as rich and personal and intimate. And I think some of that goes back to what you were saying about the grassroots way that Cher went about collecting the data. She really put a huge emphasis on um, trying to create a survey that was intimate and friendly. She didn't, you know, require that people answer every question. She encouraged people to put little drawings in. She herself made the surveys filled with like little handwritten notes and words of encouragement. It was really kind of trying to create something more like a consciousness raising group across the entire country than it was anything kind of cold and scientific. And I think that might have been also why the responses are like confessional and intimate and written as though you would tell something to a friend when even today, friends don't sit around and have conversations about things like this, you know? So it's a rare point of access. And I think that's one reason why it was so explosive. Yeah, and I think that that's also part of the reason why Nancy Friday's work on women's sexual fantasies was so popular around that same period in time, because you're right, you didn't have many other places where you could go to access this information. It wasn't common for people to talk about these kinds of things with anybody else. And so books were really this very valuable source of information on human sexuality. Now, it was fascinating hearing all the media clips that you included in your documentary about people's reactions to the book. And I know you just mentioned that some men talked about how valuable the height report was for them in terms of giving them insight into female sexuality. But it seemed like a lot of the guys in a lot of these interviews felt quite insecure. And I recall in one of the clips, there was some guy talking about how this book was going to make men obsolete because if women could reach orgasm so easily from masturbation, why would they ever need a man? And there were even some who dubbed this the hate report because they saw Cher's work as being man-hating. So why do you think so many men got up in arms regarding this book about women's pleasure? I mean, somebody was writing about the film a couple of days ago, and they said that that her finding was that women didn't need men to achieve an orgasm. And that's really not what she would have said her finding was. It was more about how women could achieve orgasm. And her her thought was that, you know, men should know that so they could do that. 
you know, with their partners. And it could be, it could be incorporated into the sexual relationship itself. And I think she was really shocked that that's how it was interpreted with all of this, with this, you know, very insecure response about, you know, you're saying we're not necessary. You're saying we're not necessary. And I think that was, it's intersecting with the gains of the women's movement, you know, with the passage of Roe v. Wade and with laws about equal employment and things like that. So I think there was a perception at the time that the priority status of men was being challenged because by women who wanted equality. They wanted equality in the workforce and they wanted equality in their private lives and they wanted to be equal citizens of this democracy. And this was a very personal triggering part of that for men. You know, they didn't want their special, I mean, I'm just speaking off the cuff here, but I, I kind of think they didn't want their their special status as orgasm deliverers to be challenged or taken away in any way, you know? And I think that's the other thing about Share Height that was so, seemed so important to me when thinking about, you know, looking back and telling the story is the way that she was always taking this research and connecting it to politics and her idea of what kind of, what a democracy should be, you know? I think that may be one, one major reason why men had struggled so hard, but I also think it had to do with, with Cher herself. She was somebody who presented as such a fully kind of sexually realized, beautiful individual, but yet she was also so brilliant and intelligent, and she was kind of deigning to tell men who figured they were experts on sexuality and how to give women pleasure, um, something that they didn't know. And in that sense, I, I believe she was sort of like the, the object of their desire, speaking back and educating them. And that, that didn't go over very well either with a certain segment of the male population. Yeah. As you were talking about all of that, I was thinking about some recent research I've seen looking at heterosexual men who feel that providing women with orgasms is a masculinity achievement, right? It's part of their sense of masculine worth for some of them. And, you know, this was recent research. And I think that that's been true for decades is that heterosexual men have sort of given themselves some credit for <laughs> providing orgasms to women, or some people use the term giving orgasms, right? So I think you're you're spot on in terms of that kind of being the a source of insecurity there. But also, you know, Cher, as you mentioned, was this unique figure in a lot of ways. And being the first to really come out and say this and being all over in the media, I think was also part of that as well, right? Because this just wasn't a typical topic of conversation at that point in time. And, you know, the amount of negativity that Cher received in response to her work was really intense. You know, people were trying to do everything they could to try and discredit her and her work, even resorting to slut shaming. So tell us a little bit about how people tried to cast aside the hype report and to discredit Cher herself. There was a wave of very positive response. You know, one of the reasons that I was attracted to this story too was that it the research itself, which I find so inspiring and fascinating, is happening in the early 70s. And that's sort of a time when, you know, we had a lot of civil rights movements and a lot of conversation. Had, people had been inspired to really think about how we could remake society and make a better world. And so the Height Report sort of comes out on the tail end of that, you know, and you see 
for instance, Geraldo Rivera sitting there exhorting men to fill out the mail survey and send it in because wouldn't it be great if we could figure out what's really going on with men and we can we can make better you know relationships between men and women. So there was this sense of kind of everybody being a part of this great social experiment to do something new. And I think people were really excited about that. But then, you know, there's a backlash to the gains of the feminist woman movement. And there's a backlash against, you know, the freedom of um, sexual expression and, you know, LGBTQ rights and all of that that had been kind of those movements had been growing and blossoming. And I think Cher is caught up in that. So there starts to be a backlash like you described to the height report itself. But the the really, really awful stuff starts to happen when she comes out with this book on male sexuality, um, using the same kind of methodology and format as the height report. And at that point, people really start to tear her down. It's really, I think, killing the messenger. Like, it's one thing for you to tell us what women are thinking, but it's another thing for you to tell us about, ironically, like what we are saying <laughs> about ourselves and our emotional lives <laughs> and our sexual lives. So you see things like people going back to her early nude modeling days and even like people selling, I think, from what it looked like to me, selling photographs that uh, had been taken privately of her in the nude and putting them in major magazines and exploitatively and, you know, writing horrendous misogynistic and kind of almost violent things about her against her, threatening answering machine messages. This is also kind of along the time of the rise of the Christian right and this media consolidation and the rise of gotcha television. So the media just starts, sort of starts to have fun attacking her and passing her around from show to show. And by the time she comes out with her third book on women in love, it's really devastating. I mean, there were times in making the film when we felt like we were watching kind of this one woman taking the heat for herself in order to give voice to thousands of people who can finally express things that, you know, have been so long repressed in our culture. And to watch her taking the heat for allowing men to express themselves is really uh, brutal and pretty unbearable to watch. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about those media appearances in our next conversation because I had some strong reactions to watching them as well. Now, your film is titled The Disappearance of Cher Height. So talk to us a little bit about the disappearance part. You know, as you mentioned, after the Height Report, Cher went on to publish a couple of other books and she was this fixture in the media for two decades. But one day she just kind of disappeared from the scene overnight. What's the story there? Yeah, well, you know, in thinking about the story and coming to know it, one of the things that I thought would be really important to explore is the phenomenon of how do iconoclastic women who speak up get silenced? Because we know it happens over and over and over again in history. And in fact, Phyllis Chesler, a colleague of Cher's, recommended that I read a book by Dale Spender called Women of Ideas and What Men Have Done to Them. And it shows stories like this over and over and over of women women being suppressed by being attacked personally. So essentially what happens to share at the turn of the 80s and 90s is that the talk show abuse gets so bad and the attacks on her get so kind of violent that she just can't take it anymore. She starts to sort of 
you know, to compensate a little bit on the shows and she just can't bear up under it. And it's very sad to watch. And I think she also is not getting offers for, to publish her books. And it starts to feel like the United States itself is a really hostile territory. So she also owns this fabulous apartment on Fifth Avenue that she had bought at the um, with the Height Report proceeds. And so she sells it to pay off research debts that she had incurred, you know, on, on her subsequent projects and moves to Europe. Um, and really lives in exile in Europe like so many other people have done <laughs> who have been tormented by trying to put forth ideas about America that were challenging to dominant culture. And she, you know, she's able to write books and publish in Europe and participate in conversations in a less hostile atmosphere. And also she gets involved in some, in a really beautiful art project with a friend in Paris, you know, returning to kind of nude photography and um, sort of sexual photography, but from a female gaze in a way that's really healing and kind of reclaiming the creation of her, of her own image and an expression of who she really was, which is a person who is very brilliant and also sexual. She felt pretty strongly that that was an image of a woman that was um, that our culture couldn't tolerate. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all of that. And thank you for making this film that offers this really intimate portrait of Cher Height and her work and research. I'm really looking forward to talking to you in the next episode and continuing our conversation and diving deeper into the story behind this film. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and to see the disappearance of Cher Height? Yeah, there is a website called ShareHeightDoc.com that is, um, and IFC Films is distributing our film, The Disappearance of Share Height. It's currently in theaters in LA and New York, and it'll be expanding to more cities in December and hopefully online early next year um, on streaming platforms. So yeah, please do go see it. And um, thank you so much for having me on your show. It was so great to talk to you. It's great to talk to you as well. Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash sex and psychology. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.